We exist for the glory of God. We were made for his purposes. We have fallen from grace, as we read from Genesis chapter 3. But though we have fallen from grace in the Son of God, the new Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are made new. On account of his love poured out on the cross, we have been given new life. And we are enabled through faith in him to live in such a way that brings glory to God. We are, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is ultimately to the end that, as he says in chapter 3, that God would be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. We exist for the glory of God. As a part of his church, as a part of this new workmanship, we are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ. As we have discussed frequently throughout our study in Ephesians, The term walk is a theme that carries us through the second half of the letter. More specifically, in chapter 5, verse 15, we are commanded to walk in wisdom. This call to walk in wisdom involves giving ourselves over to the influence of the Holy Spirit as opposed to being influenced by other things. We are to be filled with the Spirit. We are to use this resource that Christ has left for his church. We are to give ourselves over to the will of the Holy Spirit so that we may walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ. Among other things, a spirit-filled Christian is a submitting Christian. We submit to those who have authority over us in ways that are appropriate. It is in this context that Paul addresses the Christian family. More specifically, last week and this week, we're considering God's design for marriage. The foundational truth that we walked away from as we consider God's design of the Christian marriage is that marriage is supposed to illustrate the relationship that Jesus has with his church. As alluded to earlier, Jesus is the head of the church. The church is his body. We've mentioned this frequently in our study. Therefore, just as the church submits to Jesus as their head in everything, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. When the Christian wife chooses to submit, it doesn't mean that she is inferior, incapable, or that the husband is the ideal man. It does mean that she is seeking to obey her Savior who has given the command for wives to submit. It does mean that she's seeking to honor God's design for marriage and the relationship between a man and woman in marriage. And, of course, it means that she's seeking to honor her husband as her head. Well, again, in keeping with that same analogy, that head and body analogy between Christ and the church and marriage, just as the wife is called to submit to her husband as her head to illustrate that, so also the husband's called to love his wife as Christ loves the church. He's called to love her as Christ loved the church, sacrificially, for the purpose of her sanctification. He's called to love her as his body, nourishing and cherishing her. He's called to do this to affirm God's plan, God's design for the marriage relationship. Well, again, we're going to be in chapter 5 of Ephesians. I'm going to read the whole context of his conversation on the family from verse 22 all the way through chapter 6, verse 4. And our focus is going to be on his words to the husband. In verses 25 through 33. Well, let's take a look at the passage again together. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father, thank you again for your word, which is truth. Your word does indeed sanctify us as you intended. We pray that you would do that this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, submission is a key word in the entire section spanning all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. So in each of the relationships listed, the one who's commanded to submit is addressed first. Last week, I gave you a broad outline of this section on marriage. Again, the section on marriage is really from verse 22 through 33. It talks about husbands and wives. In verses 22 through 30, along with verse 3, which is kind of a summary statement at 33, which is a summary statement at the end, we see the plan of God for marriage. What is God's plan? What is his pattern? And he addresses both the husband and the wife. And in verses 31 and 32, we see the purpose of God for marriage. And that's what the big picture is, what all of this is about, why he's giving these specific exhortations to husbands and wives, and what difference that makes. Well, again, this morning, we're going to consider the command to the husband. What does God desire for marriage to look like? That's the question. What is God's command to the husband? And again, the key word last week was submit. The key word this week is love. And more precisely, husbands are commanded, they're charged with loving their wives as Christ has loved the church. Now, just a quick note on the husband's role as the head of the family. Again, part of the imagery presented here in the text, and we'll talk about this just a little bit at the end as well, is that of headship. The wife is to submit because the husband is the head. The husband is to love because the wife is his body. And that imagery suggests, that imagery of headship suggests that the husband ought to be leading in their families. Husbands, your wives are to submit to your headship, your leadership. That means that you must lead your families. In every way, you are to lead your families. Now, you may delegate some responsibility to your wife as is appropriate in your relationships, as is appropriate for her role, but the final responsibility for leading your homes, men, is at your doorstep. The text does not state that husbands are supposed to lead, but it implies, again, by virtue of the analogy of headship. Most men are okay with the idea of being the head of their home and especially with their wives submitting until they actually have to lead and take responsibility for the condition of their family. Again, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But I'll say for now that one of the most crucial ways that you husbands can lead your family is in developing a family identity. Meaning, what is your family going to be like? What is it going to do? Where is your family headed in life? What is your family going to be known for? These are some of the things that you need to discuss early in your marriage and establish early for the family. These will enable you, understanding these things will enable you to move forward together for the glory of God. Failing to set this baseline for the family will inevitably lead to conflict down the road as decisions are made, as life happens, and as choices have to be thought through. Whatever your family identity is, men, it is your responsibility to lead. I think that's one of the most important things that we can take away from this passage. And as we think about what this passage actually says, it really speaks to the quality of our leadership. In other words, the quality of our leadership as the head of our homes ought to be love. It ought to be loving. 
So taking a look at the text, the actual words in the text, husbands are commanded to lead by loving their wives as Christ loved the church, meaning as his own body. And he gives four key terms in the passage, and our outline will follow those four key terms. And those four key terms are sacrificing, sanctifying, nourishing, and cherishing. In other words, this is the quality of our love. This is what our love ought to look like. And our leadership is based on this kind of love. It's based on a love that sacrifices, a love that seeks the sanctification of our family, a love that seeks to nourish, and a love that seeks to cherish. cherish. Well, let's take a look at that first term. Again, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, loving them sacrificially. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, when we read texts like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life in John 3.16. Or in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Or even in 1 John chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. It's very easy to understand that Jesus went to the cross as our Savior because God the Father has a love for us. However, it's equally important to understand that Jesus' obedience in going to the cross was an act of obedience, but it was also an act of love. He willingly gave himself up on the cross because of his love for us. He could have called legions of angels to his side to fight both Israel who rejected him and the Gentiles who crucified him. He could have gone to the cross and then decided halfway through, you know what, that's enough. I'm done with these people who are mocking and ridiculing me. I'm just going to come down and they can die in their sins. But he didn't do that. He is the creator of the world, and yet when he came into the world, the world did not even recognize him. You think about that. We give gifts to people, right? And we love to watch them open the gifts that we give to them. We love to watch them open the gifts because it makes us feel good about the fact that we went through all this time and energy and effort, and we gave them something good. And yet when the Lord of glory, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who made you, the one who made you and I, when he came into the world, the very people that he made completely disregarded him and cast him aside. When people cast aside the gifts that we give to them, we consider them ungrateful. We become angry, perhaps frustrated, offended. And we usually vow never to give that person a gift again, right? We're not going to waste our time with it. But again, the Lord of glory, the creator of heaven and earth, did not respond that way. Instead, he responded by remaining on the cross unto death. And he did that all because of his love. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Galatians 1.4, referring to Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We were all dirty, rotten, stinking sinners, just like our father, Adam. We all broke the law of God, and so we all deserve the judgment of God. Though that is true, in love, God sent forth his son, Jesus, to be the better Adam, to be the better representative for humanity, and so he is. He came forth. He lived a life of perfect obedience, having done the will of his father even to the end. In love for his father and in love for those he came to save, he laid down his life as a sacrifice on the cross, shedding his blood again unto death. His obedient life for our disobedient life. His death on the cross, the death of his perfectly obedient life, which deserves eternal life as reward, but was given as a substitute for the eternal judgment that we deserve. 
so we live as we trust in him because he loved us with a sacrificial love, a love which poured out his life unto death. Husbands, likewise, love your wives. Obviously, that does not mean that we give our life as a sacrificial, substitutionary, lamb of God kind of way. We're not Jesus. He's the only perfect sacrifice. Our sacrificial love ought to characterize the kind of love that we have for our wives. A love that first gives, not takes. A love that gives without expecting anything in return. A love that is costly and that absorbs the cost no matter what. A love that is willingly inconvenienced for another. That is sacrificial love. Husbands ought to love their wives sacrificially for that is how Jesus has loved the church. He did not wait for them. He did not wait for them to ask him to do it. He did not wait for them to be worthy of him doing it. He did not wait for them to give thanks to him for doing it. He simply laid down his life as an act of sacrificial love for his people. Husbands, does your love for your wife look that way? Are you daily laying down your life for her? Well, what might that look like in real life? And I hopefully I'm going to try to throughout this message be as specific as, as possible. We won't be able to cover everything, but, um, but what might that look like in real life? Well, I think regardless of what your home situation looks like, the attitude of the husband ought to be that whatever his job is, whatever job he does to provide, help provide for the family is not ultimately about him. It's not about him finding his fulfillment in the work that he does or him having his best life now in the work that he does. His job, the time he spends at work, the difficulty of his work, the complexity of his work, even the discouragement that he absorbs at work ought to be done as an act of love and sacrifice for his wife and his family. How about chores? Nobody likes to do chores, right? Well, men, regardless of what kind of chores you do as you consider your wives, as you consider what it means to love sacrificially, using your time, your energy, and skill to do household chores should be viewed as an act of sacrificial love. It's not something you should be looking for a pat on the back for. (laughs) It's something you should be doing because you love your wife. Sacrificial love also ought to be manifest in our everyday choices and in the little things that we do. The flowers, the candy, the cards on Valentine's Day are nice, but those things are not what make or sustain a marriage. The things that truly communicate sacrificial love happen every single day, moment by moment throughout the week. Take time in the morning to greet your wife before you leave for work. If she's not up, leave her a note sometimes. Let her know that you're thinking about her. When you come home in the evening, yes, you're tired, you're worn out, but think about what your wife needs the most. If it's an ear, give her an ear. If it's time alone, give her time alone. Something that's, you know, relatively low-hanging fruit is the reality is that sometimes, you know, we, um, in the course of our job, we take time off for various things. Sometimes we take time off for vacation. Sometimes we take time off for recreation. Sometimes... You know, we, we take time off to spend with our friends. How about giving some of your time off to your wife, man? Take the time off from work and take care of her responsibilities so she can go and do whatever she needs to do for the day. Maybe it's just sleeping or frolicking with other friends or, you know, whatever it might be, whatever she needs, give her that time. Maybe she just needs more time from you. Maybe you're working too much. Maybe when you're not working, you're spending too much time resting and relaxing. And she just needs your ear. Maybe she needs you to communicate better. I can relate to this one because I'm not the, I'm not the most emotional in my communication. And so that's something that we talked about, my wife and I talked about early on in our marriage. Because it's easy for me not to talk about how I'm feeling about something often because I don't think it's all that important. But it's important to her for her to know about it because she wants to know who I am and she wants to know what's on my mind and what's on my heart. So sometimes, guys, you have to sacrifice your natural inclinations and your personality for the sake of your wives. Now, I have to say this before moving on. Quote, unquote, watching the kids is not an act of sacrificial love to your wives. 
because the kids are your kids, right? Like it drives me crazy. Sometimes I'll be out and about with the kids and, you know, people will kind of make comments like that or they'll ask me about that. You know, are you watching the kids today? And I'm like, no, I'm being a father. This is what fathers do. My wife doesn't have to be there. Like I'm being a father. I'm being a dad. This is what dads do. They spend time with their kids. I'm not watching the kids. You don't get a pat on the back for that, guys. All right. We're to love our wives with a sacrificial kind of love. We're not to wait for our wives to ask us to do these things or to think through what it means to love sacrificially. We're to pursue that. We don't wait until we think they're worthy of us loving them sacrificially. We don't wait until they show gratitude for us loving them sacrificially. We certainly should not wait for a holiday for us to love them sacrificially. We should do it because this is what our Lord is calling us to do. In obedience to him, he's calling us to love our wives as Christ loved the church, not the way you're used to doing it. I wonder, would your wife say that you love her sacrificially today? Would she say that your love is sacrificial? The church can never say that the love of God, the love of Jesus is anything less than that. He has proven that in no uncertain terms. Men, it is your responsibility to show in no uncertain terms and for your wife to confess, my husband loves me sacrificially. That's your responsibility. All right, let's look at the second word on our list. Husbands are to love as Christ loved the church, as if she were his own body, loving sacrificially, loving in order to sanctify her. Verses 26 and 27, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, these words are related somewhat. The text tells us that Jesus' sacrifice was for a purpose. The purpose was the sanctification of the church. Jesus sacrificed for the church not just to provide her with a get-out-of-hell-free card. He didn't sacrifice for the church just to provide her with the bare minimum of escape from the wrath of God. He sacrificed for her in order that, look at the text again, verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. This is an allusion to the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, regeneration, the washing of the water with the word. When the word goes forth, the gospel goes forth, the message of the gospel activates the work of the Holy Spirit. He is poured out on humanity, and when he's poured out on humanity upon those who have been given to Christ, he regenerates them. He gives us life from spiritual death. And they are washed with the water of the word. But that's not all. They are washed with the water of the word. Look again at the text. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That is the design and the desire ultimately for the salvation that we have in Christ. Titus, Paul says it this way in Titus chapter two. He gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Again, Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I've said this frequently, and I pray that all who hear understand salvation, the gospel, the work of the gospel, what it means to be a Christian is not simply a matter of going to church building on Sunday morning. It's not just a matter of having a Bible in your own language. It's not just about being a good moral person, a person who does good things for others. Being a Christian means that on account of your faith in Jesus Christ as the one who died as a substitute for your sins, upon hearing that truth, you've believed in Jesus, that he died, he rose again from the dead, that he is Lord, having been granted all authority in heaven and on earth. You have trusted in him as Savior. You've trusted in him as Lord. He has poured out his Holy Spirit on you so that you might believe. You're no longer the same person that you were before trusting in Christ because God has given you new life. There's fruit from the Holy Spirit at work in you. You confess and others are able to confess about you that God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's not just about us being good people. It's about Jesus being the good man, the righteous one. It's about 
faith in him as the righteous one leading to new life in us. It's about that new life that he gives us leading us to desire and to be able to live righteously. That's what salvation is all about. The work that God does for us on the cross to save and to sanctify. Now, again, we are not Jesus as husbands. We're not here commanded to die sacrificially to take away the sin of our wives, nor are we commanded to be the Holy Spirit in the lives of our wives to sanctify them. The point is that the quality of our love ought to be governed by a desire to see our wives sanctified. Your thoughts about how you love your wives ought to involve a desire to see her drawing closer to Jesus. I'll say it another way. A part of your responsibility, men, in the lives of your wives, a part of your responsibility as a husband is to love her in such a way as to promote her spiritual well-being, to promote her sanctification. This means that it's not enough just for you to provide the bare minimum of what it means to be a husband. We always talk about providing for her needs and protecting her. And I don't care what the world says, but providing financially for your wife and protecting her physically is just a part of what it means to be a man. That's nothing special about what it means to be a Christian. Atheists, agnostics, and the like do the bare minimum of protecting and providing for those who are in their charge and those who they have some sort of love for. That's not enough for us men. What it means is that we should do nothing to draw our wives away from the Lord. Our words to her, our actions toward her, our plans and purposes for the family as a head ought to involve a definitive plan, perhaps not a perfect plan, but a clear definitive plan to lead our wives closer to the Lord, not away from the Lord. Again, men are often glad to hear the preaching on a passage of scripture that reminds wives that they ought to submit, but rarely consider the implications of what it means that we are supposed to lead. And this is a part of it. If you're supposed to be the head men, that means that you take responsibility for the spiritual condition of your families. You should be the one to lead in getting your family ready for church every Sunday morning. That means giving careful consideration to the activities of the family through the week, in particular on Saturday evening. You should be the one to lead your family or your wife in considering their own spiritual walk with the Lord. You should lead in prayer. It doesn't mean that you're the only one who prays, but you should lead in that. You should lead in family devotions. It doesn't mean that you have to have a Bible college degree. Maybe you just read from a devotional. Maybe you just listen to something spiritually oriented together. Regardless of what you all decide, you should lead in that, men. This also means, men, and I want you to listen carefully to this, that if your wife is struggling in her relationship with the Lord or failing to obey the Lord in one area or another, that you lead her to obedience in the Lord. That's your responsibility. I can't tell you how many men have come to me and told me about all the things that their wife are doing or not doing. She did this. She did that. She didn't do this. She didn't do that. She has this kind of attitude. I can't believe it. Can you? Well, here's my answer, men. What are you doing to help your wife grow in that area? In fact, what have you done to lead her to this point? You are the head, are you not? Do you go to the doctor's office and say to the doctor, doctor, my toe is painful, it's swollen and red and I can't move it. Well, what's the doctor going to ask you? What did you do to it? It's a part of your body. What did you do to it? Well, I dropped my bowling ball on it. Well, I stubbed my toe at the edge of the bed doctor's going to tell you what you need to do to correct it ice it stay off of it stop dropping bowling balls on your toes right but you got an action you have something you need to do do you remember genesis 3 that we read earlier who ate from the tree first the woman she gave to her husband and he did what he said sweetie we, we really shouldn't do this we need you need to put that back i mean it's, you know you're not going to be able to stick it back actually because you already plucked it but we need to put it back and we need to walk away no he took it and he ate it and so who did God go to first? Who did God call first in the garden? He knew who pulled the fruit from the tree. He knew who bit from the fruit first. God knew all of these things. But who did he go to? He went to Adam. He called to Adam. And he said to Adam, where are you? Husbands, if your wife is struggling with something, where are you? What are you doing? How are you loving? 
How are you aiding her? How are you caring for her? Where are your prayers? You are responsible for loving your wives in such a way that it aids their spiritual development and growth in the Lord. Now, certainly this means that you must be pursuing a deeper relationship with Christ yourself. If you're to leave your wives spiritually, then you must have something spiritual to contribute to her life. Again, it doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that you need a Bible college degree. It just means that you should be progressing in your relationship with the Lord. That should be a priority for you, and it should be a priority for you so that you can build into your wife. should be regularly praying for your wife for her spiritual growth for areas of sanctification for her development as a person for her overall good you need to know what she needs so that means you should be regularly listening to your wife asking her how things are going not just hey what'd you do today but how did that thing go that you did today and how are you feeling about it what can I be praying for you about it means or it may mean on the basis of that conversation, embarking on a certain biblical study together to help her spiritually. It may mean, on the basis of that conversation, encouraging her just to get out of the house again, to get some exercise, to have some quiet time alone, to connect with other ladies in the church. Good influences, of course. Perhaps older ladies, as we talked about from Titus chapter 2. Maybe younger ladies for, for fellowship and positive peer pressure. Or maybe both, but you take interest in that for your wife and you make sure you put it on the calendar for her good. It may mean, as we talked about earlier, putting time on the calendar, sacrificing your scheduled time off and extra resources to make sure that she gets out, that she goes to a ladies' conference, that she's able to do some of these other things for her spiritual good. It may mean getting counseling for your marriage. Maybe you know that something is broken. Often people turn a blind eye to it or they don't say anything because they're embarrassed and they feel like, oh, woe is us. We're having a hard time in our relationship. And, you know, everybody has hard times in their relationship. Everybody struggles because all of us are sinners. And sometimes we're fools. And so we all need help. And we live life in community as believers. And so just ask for help. And if you need more help, maybe that means going to counseling. And men, you need to recognize that, acknowledge that, and you need to lead in that if that's what you need. And not just sit back and wait for your wife to do something about it. That means if you're getting into it and you're having an argument, you're struggling, that you are the one to correct the course first, men. You seek forgiveness first. You hold your tongue. You show love to your wife in that way. You lead her in that way. <clears throat> Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Men, when you stand before God, you're going to give an account for your life. And when you give an account for your life, you're going to give an account for how you have cared for your wife. Because you are the head and she is your body. Has she grown in Christ under your leadership or has she withered away? And we lead through loving men. We love men because of and how Christ loved the church, not because our wives are always lovely, not because we will always see the immediate benefit from it, but because in obedience to our Savior, we're commanded to love, and thus we pursue love, sacrificial love to sanctify them because we know that this reflects his glory. We love our wives with their greatest good in view, that through our love they may draw closer to Christ. Moving on, we looked at the first two key words, sacrifice and sanctify. Now we move on to the last two, and we'll look at those two together. Husbands are to love their own wives by nourishing and cherishing them as his own body. Verses 28 through 30, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Now, the overall command in this text is that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. But you see in this verse a parallel command for husbands to love their wives. In this case, he doesn't use 
the words as Christ loved the church, but he uses the words as their own body. Why is that? Because Jesus loved the church as if it were his own body, because we are members of his body. In the design of God, the Christian marriage, again, involves a husband being the head of the family, the wife being his body. She submits to him because he is her head. He loves her, takes care of her, nourishes and cherishes her because she is his body. Do you get the picture? Just as Jesus took care of his body, the church, so also should husbands take care of their body, his wife. That's the parallel. That's the design. When the people of the world see the Christian marriage, what they should see is a picture of Jesus's relationship with the church. Men, love your wives as Jesus loved the church. Love your wives as if she is your own body. When you love your wife, you are loving your own body. That is how to think of your wife. She is my body. What did Adam say? Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He named her woman because she was taken out of a man. That's one of the most intimate expressions of relationship there is between humans. She was not formed from the dust like everything else. That's one, one, one of the most significant aspects of the creation of the woman in Genesis. Everything else was formed from the dust of the earth. But she was particularly formed from Adam's own flesh. People make a big deal about the fact that she was taken from his side. They'll say something like, not from his head to rule over him, not from his feet to be trampled under, not from his back to walk behind him, you know, and all of that, and they get into it, but that totally misses the point. The point is not directionally where she came from or what part of his body she was taken from. The point is that she was taken, shaped, and molded from his body. She is literally bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Well, how well do you take care of your bodies, man? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29, no one ever hated his own body, right? I mean, there are perhaps some disturbed people who hate their bodies and do things and mutilate themselves, but it's generally understood that it's disturbed behavior. It's not right. They need help. Ordinarily, we take care of our bodies. If we're sick, we want to be made well as soon as possible. If a limb or a part of the body is hurt, we try to make it better as quickly as possible. We give our bodies water to drink. We give our bodies food to eat for fuel. We clothe ourselves appropriately for weather to make sure that our bodies are not injured. We even exercise sometimes as much as we hate it to strengthen our bodies. We take care of them. So Paul says Christ takes care of his body. He takes care of his church because we are members of his body. Verse 30. He intercedes for us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 is our advocate. He sanctifies us by the word, feeding us, John 17, John 15. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He gives us gifts to care for one another, Ephesians chapter 4. He commands us for our good and our guidance. He holds us and sustains us, John 10, Matthew 28. So also should husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church, as if they were his very own body, nourishing and cherishing them. Husbands, you are the head. Yes, that means she ought to submit to you, but that also means that you must lead, and you must lead in all the ways we discussed earlier, and particularly you must lead so that she is sanctified ultimately. But as you lead, you must also make sure that you take care of her by nourishing and cherishing her. Those two words are interesting. The word for nourish means to provide food or to bring up from childhood. Almost parental kind of language. The imagery is that of a parent taking care of their beloved child, the time, energy, and effort that is put into caring for that child in order to see that they grow into adulthood. The word for cherish means something like to make warm. This one is used in 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul is describing a nursing mother caring for her children. You consider how a nursing mother huddles over their child to take care of them while she's nursing. These words are instructive for us. Consider also this passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. I like this passage because it speaks of wives as the weaker vessel. A vessel is something used to hold something else. It's a container. In this way, in this passage, the weaker vessel is physically weaker. It's more fragile. That's not said in a derogatory sense. It's talking more about the quality of the vessel. This is, as opposed to 
um, a travel mug, right? One of those steel double-walled travel mugs that you can kind of take anywhere. You can drop it on the ground 20,000 times, and it never breaks, it never cracks. Pick it up, still use it for cold or hot, and it's just it's a great solid mug, right? It's, it's that kind of mug versus China. Now, China, we don't take out for anything. We, if, maybe if the President of the United States was visiting us, we might take out one glass and then only he would be able to use that cup. The rest of the family wouldn't be able to use the cup. The Secret Service wouldn't be able to use the cup. Doesn't matter how many weapons they have, but only the President would be able to use that one cup. And then as soon as he's done, we're putting it back in the China cabinet because we have special cabinets for China because it's delicate, it's fragile, and we want to take care of it. This is the weaker vessel. It's that fragile piece of China. Husbands, your wives, in your mind, should be that fragile piece of China. And you should have that same kind of care and give that same kind of attention and hold her in that same way. That's what it means to nourish and to cherish. This is the idea of companionship, men. We talked about companionship from the perspective of a wife giving companionship to her husband, well, you also ought to be considering how you can be a good companion for your wife. You're responsible for nourishing and cherishing her, treating her like that piece of fine china. That means that you should always speak with kindness. Speak to encourage, never to tear down. Your word should always be with grace, as if seasoned with salt, Paul says in another place. No unwholesome word should ever come forth from your mouth directed towards your wife. You should be her primary encourager. You should thank her often. You should share yourself with her. Again, we talked about sharing yourself, being open and honest about your thoughts and your feelings. You may not care to do that. You may not like to do that. You may not think it's important, but it's important to her, so do it. Pay attention to her. Let her know that she is important to you, her words, her thoughts, her actions. Be a better listener, men. Be that consistently. Show her that with eye contact. Show her that with the nonverbals. Put the phone down. Turn the television off. Put the kids in another room. Put them to bed. Sit down and listen to your wife. Give her your full attention. Include her in all major decisions. Unless the two of you have clearly established circumstances for not needing to discuss one thing or another. Continue to pursue her. Again, we're talking about nourishing and cherishing. Continue to pursue her. Keep trying to know her. We are not the same people we were when we first met because life happens. We grow. We think about things differently as life happens and as we grow. So you need to continue to pursue her. Keep getting to know her. Keep working to get to know her. Sometimes that means asking different questions about her life and about who she is. I like, there's a set of questions that we read recently from the book uh, Strengthening Your Marriage by Wayne Mack. I referred to it last week. But these are some really good, solid questions that you can just ask each other every once in a while, just, just as a means of check-in. And it's not, I mean, you don't have to do it every day. Maybe you do it every couple years. You sit down and you just ask each other what's on your mind, what's on your heart, what are your likes, what are your dislikes, what are the things that you're interested in, what are, what are your greatest fears, what are your greatest aspirations, what things disappoint you, what are your joys, your greatest joys, what makes you happy? You know, ask those things. Get to know her better. Keep working to get to know her. Tell her that she's beautiful, man. Let her know that she's the apple of your eye. There should be no doubt in her mind that she is the one who catches your eye. Beautiful people are everywhere, but your wife is your body. Nourish and cherish her with those words. You have no obligation to nourish or cherish another woman who's not your wife. Put that aside. If you're tempted in that area, remind yourself of that truth. You are not obligated to nourish or cherish everyone, but specifically husbands, you're obligated by command of your Lord to nourish and cherish your wife. Admire her, gaze upon her, and let her know about it. Hold her hand sometimes. Do all those sweet little things. Write notes to her, write her poetry, sing to her. It may not sound great, but um, she'll appreciate it. And you guys should have fun together. I think we forget about that too. Sometimes we're all business, right? But find something fun to do together, especially when life is more difficult and challenging. 
And yes, you should be invigorated with her love. We mentioned this last week. Proverbs 8, 5, 18, and 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. I said at that time also that that passage was originally written from a father to a son. He's saying, son, this is something you need to remember. You need to make sure you're careful to do. You need to be invigorated with the love of your wife, not the love of some other woman. Put her aside. Don't allow yourself to go there. You need to be invigorated with the love of your wife. I mean, Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians 7 to husbands and wives that they need to make sure that they're not depriving one another in this area. And specifically because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. And he says in that passage that the body of the wife belongs to the husband, the body of the husband belongs to the wife. That's God's design. That's God's plan. And so you need to make sure that you're not depriving one another. I think we all understand what that means. Because of sexual immorality, he says you should make sure that you're not depriving. Because of your lack of self-control, you need to make sure you're not depriving one another. You guys get what that means. Guys, you are to be invigorated with the love of your wife. Don't forget to nourish and cherish her even in this area. Make it your aim to please her. Treat her like fine china. Treat her like the apple of your eye. She is your body, men. Take care of your body. Well, again, love as Christ loved the church sacrificially to sanctify, nourishing it and cherishing her. Love her as your own body. Man, I think that if you were to be this kind of man, there's not a woman in the world who wouldn't want to submit to your leadership. That was the plan. And we'll get to the purpose here just to try to conclude. The purpose we find in verses 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so here, Paul is taking a step back. He's just addressed the wives in 21 through 24. He's addressed the husbands in 25 through 30. And now he's kind of taking a broader step and thinking a lot, again, about marriage in general. Again, he's quoting Genesis 2.24 immediately, again, after God made the woman from his body and he gave her to the man, he named her. Moses commanded, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Back in our text in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul continues. He says, this mystery is profound. Well, what mystery? We've talked about the idea of mystery before. A mystery is something that was previously unknown, but is being revealed through the apostolic teaching And Paul says the mystery is with reference to Christ and the church. In other words, the relationship between a husband and wife as they are brought together, as they come together and they become one flesh, is a mystery meant to display the picture, again, of Jesus' relationship to the church. Paul says that people didn't know that before, but I'm saying to you now that this is what it's all about. This is the point. This is the purpose. Marriage is... God bringing together a man and a woman is ultimately big picture, not just about you, husband and wife, but it's about God being glorified through the picture of Christ and the church. Again, that means that marriage is not just about you. When you come together, you have to realize that. You have to remember that. As you pursue your own roles, as you pursue oneness in marriage, you must keep that in mind. That you're not here just for yourselves to be satisfied. A lot of people give up on marriage because they're not satisfied. Well, it's not just about you. And that certainly should not be the attitude of any believer. Because God is doing something greater in your marriage. Because you're responsible to him. And seeking his glory. And I think this also points to the permanence of marriage, right? And there's a lot that we could say in talking about divorce and remarriage, and there's all the discussion in Matthew chapter 19, but the reality is that if marriage, human marriage, marriage between a man and a woman is supposed to picture the relationship between Jesus and his church, would Jesus ever for any reason discard his church? Would he ever for any reason break that bond? Would he ever for any reason walk away? And the answer is no. So the same should be true for Christian marriage. I know that it gets more complicated than that, and there are all kinds of issues 
And there are all kinds of what ifs and all kinds of scenarios. But the reality is that if you are a Christian and you are in marriage or you're a Christian and you're considering marriage, the application of this truth is that you should consider marriage as an indissolvable union. That was God's desire from the beginning. And that's still God's desire today. It was his desire from the beginning because he knew that Christ would have a relationship with the church and he desired for marriage to be a picture of that. Now, Paul concludes in verse 33 with a summary statement. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. And again, I think that's just a a summary statement there, reminding them of both of their responsibility. And it's interesting, we, in the Christian church today, I think we, we worry so much about things like the homosexual agenda, the transgender agenda, confusion over a biblical definition of marriage, confusion over biological sex and gender, and we we worry about all these things and what what difference it's going to make. But there's something so much more significant happening in Christian marriages today. And I think the greatest threat to marriage is not from outside, but it's from within. It's when we fail to do what God has called us to do as husbands and wives, as Christian husbands and wives. When wives fail to submit to their husbands, when husbands fail to love their wives sacrificially for their sanctification to nourish and cherish them. When we fail to do that, then we fail to be that picture of Christ's relationship with the church that God intended. We fail to bring glory to God as we have been called. Again, we've been created for a purpose. We've been created in Christ Jesus for a purpose. Our marriages have been created for a purpose. And we ought to be praying that God would help us to fulfill that purpose for our good and for his glory. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our time together around your word. We thank you that your word is true and your word does sanctify us. And I pray for Christian marriages this morning that you would, you would indeed sanctify the Christian marriage. I pray for my brothers and sisters who hear my voice this morning that you would indeed sanctify their marriages. That you would help wives to submit to their husbands, not just when they think their husbands deserve it, but in obedience to Jesus and to his command. That you would help husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Again, not just when they feel like their wives deserve it, but obedience to Jesus and his command. And that ultimately together as husband and wife, living in a manner worthy of the gospel, that they would bring glory to you. As their marriage shows a picture of Jesus' relationship with the church. Pray that you will make that true of all of us in Christ's name. Amen.